Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos FP's economics podcast. Every week we use data to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us this week in Hong Kong. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in the second half of the show, we're going to be continuing our series on the economics of love. We started that back on Valentine's Day with a segment on the economics of marriage. So stick around for that. But first, we're going to be doing something more from the news. And the data point is 179. That is the percentage increase in the size of Poland's economy, its GDP per capita, since the fall of communism in 1990. Poland's economic rise over the past 30 years or so has been truly meteoric. That makes it the most successful economy in Europe in that time, recording the fastest growth in Europe and outperforming other post-communist nations to become the first to reach developed status. More successful and dynamic, not only than other Eastern European countries and other success stories like Ireland, but also the big heavyweights in Europe, including France and Germany. That's given Poland an increasingly prominent role in the EU and by extension on the world stage. But the economic story is certainly part of Poland's growing influence, and that seems set to continue, so we thought we'd take a closer look. So, Adam, Poland has a a remarkable history. Just in the briefest of terms, it was wiped off the map in the 18th century. It was invaded from both directions, Germany and Russia in the 20th. So, yeah, how has that longer-term history shaped its present-day political and economic identity? Yeah, it's a truly staggering history, Poland. I mean, if you look at a, an early modern map, so a map of Europe in, say, 1600, then the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was, in fact, the dominant power of Central and Eastern Europe. I mean, Germany, by contrast, is a dog's dinner of like thousands of tiny states organized within the Holy Roman Empire. And if the link between the Polish kingdom and Saxony, uh, which would, which was fashioned in the 1600s, had worked out, the entire history of Central Europe might have come out differently. Instead, the 18th century is a disaster. Poland ends up being divided between an ambitious Prussia, Habsburgs, and and the, and the Russians. So for a new Poland to emerge, which is the story of the 20th century, it basically needs either a hegemonic patronage of one of those two, those three powers, so Prussia, the Habsburgs, or Russia, or it needs all three of them to be defeated, a kind of miracle. And that's precisely the miracle that transpires at the end of World War One. All three of them are defeated in sequence. First, the Russians then the Habsburgs and the Prussians within days of each other. And by the end of 1918, Poland is established as a, as a, a national unit. But it was, as you were saying, overtaken again by the aggression of its neighbours, smashed and divided between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union in 1939. And then you have a new phase of economic and social development under communism, which arguably is really, well, I mean, of course, what we know about communism in the long run is that it's an economic failure. 
But it wasn't from the start. And for better and for worse, one thing that Soviet era dominance and the com- rule of the Communist Party did, it industrialized Poland, it urbanized Poland, and it set a new, a much higher bar for Polish education. The num- percentage of Poles in university increased tenfold between the interwar period and the 1970s. It laid the grounds for the modern Polish success story that 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 our episode is, you know, focusing on this incredible period of growth. Again, not strictly speaking, you'd have to say, as it were, as a freestanding state, but now a Poland inserted into, on the one hand, the EU, and on the other hand, NATO. And but the scars of this history are they do linger, and on that then creates this space not just for as it were, coming to terms with real lived trauma, but also the politics of Polish nationalism, which especially since the election of the Law and Justice Party in 2015, now dominate the Polish political scene and have opened up a variety of historical legacies. Simultaneously, um, the reparations issue with Germany, where Poland is demanding over a trillion euros in in reparations, for the damage done to Poland during the German occupation, but also now, of course, confrontation with Russia over its attack on Ukraine. One interesting effect of all of that is that long-standing historic legacies of tension between Poland and Ukraine, which fought wars with each other at the end of World War I in the phase in which both of them were struggling for independence, have been papered over and buried so that Ukraine and Poland are now closely allied in the struggle against Putin's Russia. So to turn to Poland's development model since the end of the Cold War, as we've mentioned, it seems to have largely been a success. And when you get into the details, it seems to have consisted a lot on relying on foreign direct investment, foreign firms and uh, setting up manufacturing hubs across the country in Poland. And uh, I guess I'm curious how much of this success has to do with specific policy choices that Poland made versus simply the good luck of being geographically, you know, next to the EU economic heavyweight uh, that is Germany? I think the geographical factor is is no doubt highly significant because it, it can't be ignored that practically all of the former communist East European states, all of which are more or less close to Germany and to the EU, have all done quite well. So Poland is the standout case with a a growth rate since 1989 of 179%, but take Lithuania or Latvia or Slovakia, and they've all achieved 125 to 130% growth. Romania achieved a doubling of output, Slovakia, Czechia, Hungary, which were much better off than Poland in 1990, grew by 70%. So you know, everyone in that zone has achieved a relatively successful transition by comparison with, for instance, Belarus or Ukraine or indeed even Russia. Um, and they were all in that sense relatively well placed. I think that's important. I think it's important also to be clear that Germany is a big part of this. Po- Germany accounts for 26% of Polish exports, which is five times more than the next placed country, which would be uh, Czechia uh, and then the UK at five to six percent each. So Germany is a key part of the Polish success story, but it is only in the context of Europe as a whole, right? So you, you spoke about foreign direct investment. There's about forty billion euros worth of German foreign direct investment in Poland, and that's by comparison with 140 billion euros which have been pumped into Poland since 2004 by the EU as a whole, right? So the EU matters more here. 
So all of these factors, this context is very important. I mean, if you ask in what ways did the Polish policies themselves inflect this, Poland is bitterly divided over what you might think would be an economic success story. And the current you know, incumbent nationalist party is is a party of ideological warfare. I mean, they campaigned on the slogan, believe it or not, Poland in ruins. This was their slogan. So what is at stake here? Well, the the, the the advocates of the Polish success story, as they tell it, what Poland did was to do shock therapy right. So they liberalized prices, they let the market rip, they allowed, therefore, a wholesale destruction of communist era economic security, um, a huge surge in unemployment, the bankruptcy of a whole bunch of Polish businesses. But what they crucially didn't do was to privatize early on. So they avoided the formation of the baneful system of oligarchs that we saw in Russia and many of the post-Soviet states, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, and so on. This is the, the story as, as the boosters of, of, of the Polish success story tell it. What can't be discounted is that there is a counter-narrative which sees the 80s and the 90s for all of the apparent success of the transition to capitalism, to Europe and to democracy as in fact a corrupt sellout. Not on the scale of Russian chaos in the 1990s, but nevertheless a subversion of the new Polish order by the corrupt holdovers of the communist period. And without reckoning with this difference of narratives about what, on the basis of the macroeconomic data, looks like a spectacular success story, you can't understand how savage um, Polish politics has been in the last 15 years, because the um, Law and Justice Party has that name because it believes that those are the things that are at stake. I mean, in the West, we regard it as, you know, an unjust party that subverts the rule of law. But in their own terms... They understand themselves as bringing a new order and an end to the corrupt long-term legacies of the botched transition. So aside from serving as a manufacturing hub for foreign firms, is there anything that makes Poland a particular standout in the global economy? Does it have any promising paths to incubating dynamic homegrown businesses? In, in practice, I mean, it's... It's, it's, it's a highly attractive place to do business. I mean, uh, the, the key element here is human capital. It's a highly educated, highly motivated workforce. Polish students initially would travel to Western Europe and still do in considerable numbers, but now Polish universities have become magnets for students from across the former Soviet space from Ukraine and so on. So that's one of the things that it provides you with. It has a tight network of qualified supplier firms. This is you know, one of the things that we again and again see in these stories about how regions develop. It's not just one firm, it's the fact that an entire cluster of firms move there. So then everyone who's in that business really needs to be there. It also has an extremely attractive um, tax rate, uh, a 19% corporate tax, which is much lower, for instance, than that available in Germany. And thanks to the EU, it's got great recently modernized infrastructure. So if you put all of those things together and you weigh up, as it were, where to locate, it's, it's easy to see why you might prefer Poland over most places in Western Europe, Italy, for instance, or, or Germany, for that matter. Um, one thing I think which is increasingly on people's radar, and this is, as it were, where the struggles of the current Polish government with Brussels intersect with the economic story, is security of the rule of law 
and favoritism towards national companies as opposed to foreign investors. And I've actually had dealings with a big European retail firm, which is deeply involved in Poland, and they make no bones about the fact that they know that at any given moment, in in the event of any controversy, as a non-Polish firm, they're in the crosshairs. So this is a reality that you deal with if you do business in Poland right now. You can't avoid it. It's too big and too attractive and too rapidly growing a market, and the resources there are too attractive to not want to be there, but you do so under the caveat that um, economic nationalism is a really is a big deal. So I, I also wanted to ask, why exactly doesn't Poland use the euro? I mean, and have they benefited from that decision or rather have they been hurt by it? Yeah, it's a, it's a really relevant question because other members uh, uh, that have joined the EU uh, are joining the euro. I mean, most recently, Croatia uh, joined the, the eurozone. So Poland is committed under its treaty of accession also to participate in the economic and monetary union and to move as quickly as possible towards the introduction of the euro. But I think it's an open secret that it's not happening anytime soon. And this wasn't always the case. Um, in the early 2000s, um, the then pro-European governments of Poland headed by Donald Tusk that signed up to this deal were fully committed to accession to the euro. And instead, of course, what happened in 2008-9 is the financial crisis hit. Um, the Polish banks were quite exposed. It wasn't a catastrophe in Poland like it was in Hungary, but it was a dodgy moment. The sloty devalued by 50%. And hundreds of thousands of Polish households with $14 billion worth of Swiss franc mortgages suddenly find themselves facing 50% larger mortgages than they had the day before the sloty devalued. So this was a... This is, a, as it were, the relic of that early, bona fide, quite serious effort of the Poles to join the euro. And from that moment onwards, with on the one hand, the disaster that was the eurozone between 2008 and 2015, 2016, when Mario Draghi finally you know, stabilized the eurozone, um, that made the euro incredibly unattractive. And combined with then the rise to power of the Law and Justice Party, um, which is overtly Eurosceptic and directly hostile to the Euro, the issue is, has been largely buried. Um, so at this point, you'd need a two-thirds majority in the Polish parliament to get this true, and it's safe to say that it's not happening anytime soon, and with good reason, because broadly speaking, for an emerging market economy that Poland still can be qualified as, high income but nevertheless still in various ways an emerging market economy, um, it's far better to have a flexible exchange rate than it is to peg to the exchange rate of a large currency block in which the dominant powers are highly advanced economies like France, Germany, and Italy, and so on. So Poland has stumbled into a setup which in many ways is in fact better probably than convergence with the euro would have been. So finally, we've mentioned Poland's populist government, the Polish Law and Justice Party, it's been in power for several years, and it has also presided over continued economic growth. So to what extent does their economic success trace to their status as populists exactly? I mean, is there lessons here that there are specific populist platforms or ideas that are economically successful? I mean, it's really an interesting question. I think it sort of begs, you know, the question of how we link short-run economic measures, welfare measures, and economic growth. I mean, 
the the populace in Poland have been lucky in that they've inherited a growth engine and that's continued to work with considerable dynamism and has powered the Polish economy along. And so to that extent, I think we should probably separate that logic of economic growth from the comings and goings of governments and the policies they adopt. It's also true that they have, however, adopted significant welfare policies. So they, they came into power promising to rescue their country, widely regarded as an economic success story, from the ruins which had been created by the decades of uh, unequal pro-Western growth um, um, since the 1990s. And they, they promised to do this by uh, lowering the retirement age, um, rolling it back from 67 for both men and women to 65 for men and 60 for women, uh, expanding family benefits. They they created this 500 sloty, which is about 110 euros a, a month uh, payment for families with more than uh, with two kids and upwards. Uh, and then they also set about building new apartments on state-owned land. So a kind of program of investment, of redistribution. And it's not, you know, it's not inconceivable that welfare spending could, in various ways, enhance the growth potential of a country. It could help build human capital in the head, in the health sector. It could be the driver of technological change. But this sort of spending really doesn't fall into that category. It's hard to see how any of these measures could really increase Poland's long-run growth rate. So I think really what we're talking about now in Poland is is a sort of subtle balance of as it were, a growth machine shaped in the 1990s that at least has some distance to run still. Maybe, maybe not. In any case, there's that story. And on the other hand, there's a story essentially which is driven by the toxic politics of the aftermath of communism in Poland. On the one hand, and on the other hand, the story really of regional and social inequality. And if you dig down, if you really dig into the data, it's pretty obvious, I think, that the drama here is that Polish society since the 1990s has experienced, you know, truly dramatically divergent fortunes. Um, you know, if it's true that on average GDP per capita has increased, you know, uh, by a remarkable amount, if you look at the top 1% of Polish society, their incomes have, have more than quadrupled. They've probably increased by, you know, 450 odd percent, right? So what we're really talking about is a society, not, not unlike others in the world since the 1990s, but a particularly extreme case of a society that was once relatively solidaristic under communism and has now been divided in really quite fundamental ways by economic growth. And what the populist politics quite precisely identifies are those gaps, those spaces in between, and sets about remedying them in a rather direct way, a quite overt way. One of the extraordinary things about Polish politics recently is people are just not afraid to buy votes. They waive a benefit and get votes for it, which, you, you know, which is in some ways, of course, a degeneration of democracy. Um, but it speaks to a very specific need, but, but it seems quite unrelated to the underlying growth dynamic which feeds it. And I think that's got to be the question going forward is, is can this combination of a politics that responds to a genuine political, historical and social, not crisis exactly, but tensions, can that continue alongside the, the rapid growth? And, and where this is played out is in the clash with Brussels over next-gen EU payments, the payments that were supposed to drive climate and tech change that were set up in 2020 and were linked to rule of law conditionality. And, you know, that's one of the places where you see 
the rubber hitting the road because Brussels is not willing to simply play along with the government, which appears to be subverting the independence of the judiciary. And when it's not, that means that Poland forfeits tens of billions in euros in payments, which are precisely the kind of thing which has driven Polish growth in the remarkable way that uh, we've seen since the 1990s. It also makes you wonder what will happen if that development model hits its ceiling. And uh, yeah, in the absence of growth, it sounds like it could get very ugly. But I guess for now, the growth is still running. So yeah, you can have those kinds of politics where you talk about redistribution in that way pretty easily. Okay, we're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about the economics of marriage. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, welcome back. The next data point is $28,000. That is the average cost of a wedding right now in the United States. We thought we would continue our series of love with the uh, culmination of most romantic relationships, which is marriage itself. But obviously weddings are uh, not just a romantic event, but a major economic event of their own. They always have been. So yeah, we thought we'd dig in. Adam, I wanted to ask, uh, as I usually do with a kind of historical question and I was curious if you could describe how the economic logic of marriage has shifted over time. And reading about this myself, it struck me that it's gone through various phases. But what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think if you were going to do a sort of back of the envelope, you know, historical anthropology of marriage, you'd probably start with some vision of, I don't know, kitchen sink anthropology, hunter-gatherer societies in which, you know, men went out and did hunting and women concentrated in domestic labor, um, food preparation, and you'd probably move from there to a sort of Neolithic settle, settle civilization, the invention of agriculture, in which all of a sudden then the key concern, and for millennia after that then, the key concern becomes the issue of property and assets and how those are secured in you know classically dynastic form in monarchical or aristocratic families, but then increasingly also in the families of the bourgeoisie and the haute bourgeoisie, who marries who, what comes into a marriage through dowry, um, who decides on on the on the inheritance, whether or not you have a primogenitor system in which you know the firstborn son inherits, what are the consequences of not having a system like that, how you provide for daughters, younger sons, all of that then becomes the business of marriage diplomacy, something that obsesses the monarchical and aristocratic houses of the world and increasingly extends all the way down to the haute uh, the bourgeoisie uh, uh, as well. And then a modern era, you might say, in which um, 
the issue is increasingly one really of whether or not you choose to legalize a an existing relationship um, through the form of marriage. Uh, and the issue there might be, for instance, custody rights, or classically in the modern era, the sort of preemptive question of what happens when our relationship fails. I mean, a really kind of characteristic feature of what the sociologist Sigmund Bauman called liquid love in our current era, the, the presumption that romance and relationships perhaps don't endure, then of course always raises the central question of what happens when things fall apart. And so marriage becomes crucial precisely because there is a relatively strongly organized legal system for regulating how partners dissolve marriages and people who are in relationships, committed relationships without that lack security at the moment at which the relationship ruptures. So that's a that would kind of take us into a very different realm. If you actually look at the sociology of marriage right now, the central preoccupation is in fact what the sociologists call the flight from marriage or the, the end of marriage, um, the, the way in which the marriage rate for men and women uh, around the developed world has plunged in the last half century. And the question really is what's happening there and, and what that reveals is an interesting another way of thinking about marriage all the way down to the present day, which is essentially as a sort of income partnership. And the prevalent explanation, notably amongst the economic sociologists, for the, the rapid decline, we're really talking about a spectacular shift, the rate of marriage amongst, you know, in any given year of single women in the United States, 50% less marry now than did in the 1970s. Hmm. Um, in any given year. So a huge reduction in the willingness to enter into matrimony. And one driver of this is thought to be the fact that women's prospects educationally and in terms of income has dramatically increased. And as a result, women are much more selective in finding their partners and taking their time to find those partners. And on the other hand, for an unfavored group, broadly speaking, the male working class across much of the advanced economic world, the prospects have become much worse. Uh, low levels of education translate into much worse labor market outcomes. And so we've seen, particularly amongst groups suffering also racial discrimination, notably black men in the United States, a collapse in the rate of marriage, which is then associated in a horrible circular vicious cycle with diminished outcomes in terms of family stability, labor market prospects. And so you see a polarized picture of the disintegration of family relationships and marriage amongst the population suffering the most severe labor market shock and the kind of consolidation of a neo-bourgeois, nevertheless quite fluid model of marriage, which includes the possibility of divorce now, but a highly legalized form of divorce for those who've done better out of the massive economic changes of the last half century. I think that's very useful. It's sort of macro level survey of uh, marriage as an economic uh, institution. Mm -hmm. But obviously, there's all sorts of relevant economic aspects on the micro level of weddings and marriages, just starting with, I suppose, engagement rings. How has the economic function of specifically engagement rings themselves changed over time? Uh, I mean, in my reading about this, it seems like they've gone from a kind of marital insurance to an expression of conspicuous consumption. Could you describe that, Adam? Well, engagement rings turn out to have a really fascinating history that I, I have to say I was not I was not uh, fully aware of. So it it turns out that in the 19th century it was quite common for 
both men and women to give each other engagement rings. I mean, common in the sense that this was something that aristocrats or highly you know, affluent bourgeois people would do. Um, but the crucial point here is that it was both genders. Um, but that is not the model that translates into the 20th century. And the modern engagement wing, ring model appears to have arisen out of the conjuncture of the 1930s, where the diamond business was in terrible trouble. De Beers, which was the great South African mining monopoly, was desperately looking for new outlets for a glut of diamonds. They were sitting on years and years of oversupply and decided to push through a direct and explicit tie-up with Hollywood a, uh, an advertising campaign for Diamonds Are Forever. Right? The, the, the idea that diamonds would symbolize the eternity of marriage. There had been a similar campaign amongst jewelry firms from the 1920s onwards to expand their market by encouraging men to wear engagement rings as well. And the two things converge in the, in the 1930s in a sort of reconsolidation of the, of the ring-bearing habit amongst engaged couples. And then adding on top of this is an extraordinary piece of American legal history. So this push by the diamond and the jewelry business to popularize the use of engagement rings they ran slogans like, you know, love knows no depression and things like this. So it was a really quite deliberate effort coincided with changes in the American legal system. And, and under um, the American law of the 19th century, um, in the event of a, uh, a fiancé failing to carry through on an engagement with his his betrothed, his 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 wife to be, he was open to legal liability in the form of a suit for breach of promise. And why this mattered is that um, sex before marriage was hugely hugely risky uh, for women because obviously virginity was something that could be tested in women, and sex amongst engaged couples was by the twenties and thirties increasingly common. And so a woman could find herself in the disastrous position in the case of a broken off engagement in which she had engaged in relations with her husband-to-be and was now, you know, in the horrible parlance of the marriage market of the day, damaged goods because she was no longer a virgin and so could had literally under law a claim against the man who'd failed to carry through on the on the on the marriage arrangement and these laws began to be struck down in the 1930s and apparently one of the logics for high value diamond rings is that it essentially gives the guy skin in the game right because insofar as you give a woman a highly expensive diamond ring and then marry her the property comes back to you through the marriage contract whereas if you give her a diamond ring you know, you you spend the night together and then the engagement is broken off. She keeps the ring. So to move to another aspect of the economics here, I obviously grew up with this traditional cliche in mind that the father of the bride pays for the wedding. And I never stopped to question whether, in fact, that was true, which is why you're here, Adam. Uh, can, does that cliche actually reflect the reality? I mean, who exactly does tend to pay for weddings in the United States? 
I mean, because weddings are such big business in the US, we actually do have data about all of this because people want to know, right? Because if you pay, you also have a say in how the wedding goes down. And so navigating relations with, you know, the father and mother of the bride is a, is a major concern of the wedding business. And indeed, the data do tend to confirm this basic fact that still um, in the majority of cases, in fact, of 52% uh, of wedding expenses are thought to be covered by the parents. Um, that leaves 47% to be covered by the the couple and 1% to be chipped in by friends in one way or the other. And of the majority parental contribution, um, at least in cases where we're talking about marriages, um, of uh, heterosexual marriages of, of, of men and women, 93% um, of the contribution comes from the wife's side, the future wife's side. So that, that mm. tendency seems to persist to a really remarkable um, extent. What's really striking is second marriages, where uh, the couple overwhelmingly contribute. So I mean, the, mm. the only mm. only ten percent of the the burden in the case of second marriages is is carried by by either of the spouses' um, parents. Interesting. We also have data for LGBTQ um, couples, and in their cases, um, there is still a very significant parental contribution. So thirty seven percent coming from the parental side, sixty one percent from um, the couple. This is not irrelevant to you, Adam. Right? You have a daughter. Uh, could could? Oh, uh, thanks, Cam. Yeah, I hadn't be, even thought of could that. Could be on no, the hook here. Just, I, I was actually welcome doing to America. The on my own. You know, I yes, think as, I, as I an think immigrant, I lose yeah. on. I think I lose on both sides actually, without disclosing <laughs> any details. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, just 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 twice wanna, married, and you know, I don't think there was any contribution from anyway. So I shouldn't say anymore. <laughs> I got el I mean, I I got eloped essentially, so there was no contribution from from either family really. And, How exciting! And, uh, we should I, say more about the economics of eloping at some point. Yeah, no, no, I'll, I'll, I would certainly recommend it. it makes recommend it. Less it. <laughs> I don't. It makes things less. I, I have a friend now who's getting married, and the invitations and who they're, how many people they're inviting. It oh, seems like a headache. Yeah. yeah, but um, I guess finally I want to end with I guess a question back on the macro level a little bit here. It did strike me that marriage is often cited in the United States for correlating with various positive economic outcomes for the families and for kids. You know, and this claim is always at the center of a lot of culture war debates about, obviously, the importance of marriage and whether people ought to be getting married, etc. And it got me wondering whether there is kind of definitive research on this question, I guess, specifically on the question of causation. I mean, is it clear that marriage is responsible for causing these economic outcomes that people are citing? Or is it possible that the causation runs the other way somehow, that, you know, people of positive economic backgrounds tend to get married, etc.? I think in our current world that we were just talking about earlier on in this this episode, you know, in which more marrying is associated with everything else going well in your life, um, disentangling those relationships is increasingly difficult in some sense, right? The, the statistical difficulty here is the expression of a historical development, which means that to those who have shall be given, right? There's this sense of a concentration of prosperity, relative emotional stability, good health, uh, measures of well-being, and a wide choice of potential marriage partners um, with similar attributes um, at one end of society. And where all of those trade-offs become really tough is at the other end of that spectrum. And we spoke earlier on about the position of 
unmarriable men. So men with poor education, disadvantaged uh, um, economic circumstances, low pay, low labor market outlook, most likely an arrest record, potentially um, records of incarceration, uh, major issues of mental health and substance abuse. In that group, as it were, the inability to marry is just, as it were, one more feature of a situation of multiple deprivation. <clears throat> and there is another group to consider here, which is women in the same position of, of multiple disadvantage. And there's been quite a lot of work on the, the consequence and the significance of marriage um, for women in disadvantaged labour market situations, um, uh, unwed mothers and particularly teenaged uh, mothers, the, the rate of teenage pregnancy having fallen quite dramatically in the United States. But nevertheless, the, the, the data on this in terms of material well-being, health, labour market participation and ultimately economic outcomes is really very unambiguous, which is that for especially a young mother to be... Um, outside a partnership of any type, and it's not a question of you know, heteronormative uh, affirmation of that particular type of marriage, um, but to be raising a child on her own without the support of a, uh, an earning partner is a just extraordinarily vulnerable position to be in, and it's one which is associated with the most spectacular rates of poverty and child poverty uh, in almost all advanced societies, however well off they are. And what is particularly damaging in situations like that is the failure of marriage. So not just, as it were, um, being single, but being single as a result of divorce, because divorce compounds the rupturing of a partnership that was supposed to provide stability, particularly in precarious circumstances, compounds the damage. So women in that situation who were once married and divorced are worse off than those who never married. And that's where I think, you know, the real drama of the current story of marriage is playing out, perhaps particularly in the United States, but, but around, the, around the developed world. Fascinating. Yeah, I guess I would just add, in addition to all these economic benefits, I suppose, uh, it's also just fun. Uh, it's also, there's also just the question of having a, a party after getting married, which I can endorse. But yeah, we do need to leave it here. We will continue this series on love in the next couple of weeks, so... Yeah, join us for those conversations. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code Twos at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or you can email us podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us. That's at ones and twos pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.
Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador, coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.